Join everybody and welcome. This is Identity Unlocked and I'm your host, Vittorio Bertocci. Identity Unlocked is the podcast that discusses identity specs and trends from a developer perspective. Identity Unlocked is powered by Zero. In this episode, we focus on system for trust domain identity management, better known as SCIM. Today, we are chatting with Phil Hunt, founder of Independent Identity and editor of Scheme Specifications. And we welcome our show's first ever returning guest, Pamela Dingle, Director of Identity Standards. Pamela has been contributing to conversations about rechartering Scheme. Welcome, Phil and Pam. Hello. Yay. <laughs> Thanks for joining me today. Pam already shared her story in episode three of Identity Unlocked, so I'll leave her be this time, but I'm very, very curious to learn how Phil ended up working in identity. And as it's tradition, let's start with how you ended up working in this field. So I got started about 25 years ago on the customer side of things, working for one of the world's largest mining companies. They needed to get a million documents online very quickly so that people can access the information. And of course, we needed to know who was accessing, what were their access rights, what documents could they have access to. And we were almost doing things that U.S. Diplomatic Service was trying to figure out in 1996. So very quickly, we started deploying one of the first meta directories out there. You may remember Kim Cameron and Zoomit. We were one of their customers and later oh, became wow. Microsoft customers. Fantastic. Yeah. After that, you may remember Don Bowen, who was at Sun and before that Caterpillar. He and I were colleagues. Nice. We joined a company called Tide Point. We spent a year spending a lot of money building almost, now that I think about it, what is Amazon Web Services today, This, except this company was based on deploying Meta directory in 30 seconds. Too bad the economy collapsed and that one didn't go forward. <laughs> Darn it. Darn. I then, a couple of us then started uh, Octet String, which was if we were going to do this again and make it scale, how would we do it? And we came up with Virtual Directory, which was a, a proxying and mapping technology. We found ourselves solving LDAP interop problems, LDAP schema problems, consolidating. Active Directory Forest, things like that. And we got the attention of Oracle who acquired us. After that, a bunch of customers were asking, what's this uh, open authorization thing? And is it secure? Where I got roped into the OAuth working group and ended up contributing to the OAuth threat model and security considerations document. And from there, Chuck Mortimer, you may recall, and a bunch of people were putting forward this idea of a REST API for identity management called SKIM, a simple cloud identity management it was called back then. So I joined in with the cool kids and uh, we thought, let's formalize it in the IETF. And that was a chore bringing it into the IETF when we got that done. And I ended up herding the, helping to herd the cats as the editor of the spec to get things decided and get things done. And, and it was actually interesting because 
REST was not as simple when you want to make it interoperable and implementable by many service providers and not just one. So that's something we can get into later. So I helped bring those specs forward to their current state. And we've all been implementing them and doing other things. I've since left Oracle and started my own company. One of the things I wanted to do was build an open schema independent version of Skim that would be configured just by JSON. And you could do anything you want with it in a, in a cloud native implementation. So I'm working on that. And that's done as an Apache open source project called i2skim.org. IO as an independent identity skim that's available for people to access and help contribute to if they want. Very nice. That is uh, definitely a wild ride. And uh, (laughs) I can see how your background just like uh, conspired to get you at the center of a milestone of a scheme work. So fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. And you're ready for what declared some of the things that we're going to touch on, but Now let's formally actually get uh, into the meat of the episode. And I would start to explore, as is classic for Identity Unlocked, what is the problem that Scheme really solves? Like, uh, why did you, Chuck, uh, and friends got together and instead of doing uh, more fun activities, you ended up uh, discussing uh, specifications? What is the problem that Scheme solves? I think... First off, it was a question of everybody was coming online and building REST APIs, and isn't this great? But I think the product managers were figuring out very quickly that if everybody implements it, we'll have a thousand different APIs to support and a new connector every day to write, and that wasn't going to fly for very long. So let me pause you here. Like here, you are saying REST APIs, but you are thinking about REST APIs for directories, I guess. Not just directories, but any web application that needs to have users populated. And so Chuck was coming from salesforce.com. And I think they had the business challenge of, and I don't want to speak for Chuck, but this is the way I understand it, that, you know, if you have 100,000 employees to provision, you don't want to first have to write custom code just for Salesforce and then write all that code to get it uploaded. And in the meantime, without an API, you would have administrators entering those users in by hand and then having to manage them by hand forever. And that becomes a pain for enterprise customers to maintain all that data. And the question is, how are we going to do that? I would add just that you're right. The world was run by CSV files, comma separated. I don't even know what the V stands for in CSV. Values. I said values, there you go, (laughs) separated values. But the problem was everybody was doing the same thing, right? Every website you go to, you have to do the same things every time. You have to add a user, you have to delete a user, you have to change the user's attributes and roles. And so people were writing these API interfaces, but they were never identical. They were always just that little tiny bit off that meant that the same code couldn't be run for every single one. And so if you had a thousand... APIs, you know, a thousand different applications in the cloud, which seemed pretty unlikely, I think, back then. But now it isn't, right? So imagine all you have to do is be off by a little bit. Like you can have a slightly different username, attribute name, or you can have a slightly, you know, first name can start with a capital F or have an underscore in the middle. And all of a sudden, you know, even the the names of the attributes that you're trying to manage with this API 
can be just different enough to cause all sorts of pain. And that's what skim addresses. Let me put in focus the scenario that you guys are talking about. Here, the, what uh, I'm imagining as, uh, as you guys are describing is, is uh, I have already a set of users, whether it's a directory or whether it's a store, doesn't matter. I have a user population. And now I want to use one of those APIs or SaaS products that you're mentioning. And so now somehow I need to make those users known to these uh, new APIs, which is why you are talking about uh, these web APIs. That's why you brought up uh, these CSV files because uh, that's one way of like taking all the users and saying, am I understanding correctly the scenario? You're trying to move, essentially the, the bigger problem is that you're trying to maintain a state machine of what users work for you, what users might be your customers, right? Who those people are, how much entitlement they have, and whether they're active or disabled in, in any one of a whole bunch of different applications across your entire suite of applications. And so it's a, the idea of you, you push the data out and you make sure it's accurate so that when you make access decisions, for example, those access decisions are based on the most accurate picture of who works for your company at any given moment. It's like accounting kind of. Perfect. And the thing that makes these an issue is that uh, all the information that you just described uh, normally is just locked in uh, a directory or a user store. And uh, the applications that you're mentioning, your suite of applications, might not have direct access to this thing because they might be implemented in a different way. They might be a SaaS product. They might be a REST API. And so you need somehow to extract or synchronize, make this information available. Right. In fact, what you really wanted, and you know, it, what usually happens today, in fact, is that humans do it. So a human might go in and create a user in five different applications. And if they do that, a bunch of things can happen. First of all, they can make typos. So now the data is incorrect in maybe one out of five systems. Second of all, um, if that user goes away or is on vacation and then a really important event happens, then that data may not be updated in a timely fashion. The manual version of maintaining user accuracy of user data is extremely error prone and time consuming. What Skim gives you is an API by which you can automate the process of keeping all your user data the same across all of your systems. So it's much faster and more accurate. And then the additional solution to the problem is that you only have to write code to do that automation in one way. And you can maintain five, 10, 100, 1,000 systems. So it's highly scalable. Wonderful. So that's the problem statement. Now let's backtrack for a second and let's see what, what is a scheme. Like scheme is more than one spec and those specs define various artifacts. So Phil, can you expand on that? Tell us a bit what is the meat of scheme. Yeah, so there's there's two specifications. There's first of all a protocol specification, which is really what REST thinks about is is how do you profile HTTP verbs, which would be post, get, put, patch, and delete to perform the create, read, update, delete uh, lifecycle of of resources on a server. But what we have to do is for skim is marry that with a data format, which the group chose early on as a JSON structure. And you have to move these JSON documents on and off the server. So what are we creating? We're creating a user, which is expressed in a JSON document. 
and we just specify in the JSON document what are the attribute names we're going to use. And we ended up calling those schemas. That was that was quite a controversial subject because we were trying not to reproduce XML schema. We were simply trying to say, these are the data elements. And more importantly, this is what an email looks like. This is what a telephone number looks like and reference all the standards for each of those so we get some consistency between platforms because we're trying to avoid errors. So if I write a skim client to provision to a skim server, we're kind of hoping that all the skim server implementations will work the same and they'll have the same behavior semantics. A few things that naturally crop up then is if I specify a username at Salesforce and then I go to Auth0 or Okta, will that same username work? And it depends on what are the requirements for uniqueness. So we talk about these issues that come up in the documents. And then what are all the failure conditions that can result from formatting errors and things like that? So that's really what the skim specs get into. And that really was the problem we had from skim one, which was an informal document setting. And we learned a lot of experience about what were the interop issues and corner cases that spring up. And we formalized it all inside the IETF while trying to maintain backwards compatibility, but we actually laid out all the corner cases and failure conditions, which led to a spec that was larger than I would like to see, but I think it's proven to be fairly clean in most cases. I'm laughing right now, (laughs) but I think we did pretty well. And a lot of the cases I'm running into now are the same life cycle we've seen in OAuth, where people actually want to use it now more as a directory server before the criteria was, it's a provisioning endpoint. I just want to create and update accounts. Now people want to talk about new cases that are directory, and that's still up for discussion, but it's really new use cases and new ways of use that the original working group hadn't considered. So before we go too far in that direction, let me summarize a bit uh, uh, what we said so far. So first that you... So you mentioned Scheme 1 and Scheme 2. So tell, tell me a bit more about that. Scheme 2 is the one that was uh, uh, ratified by ITF. What year was this? Uh, I think we finished it in 2016. Yeah, I think it 2015 and 2016. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Scheme 1 instead was something like uh, 2011. Is it possible? 2010, 11 timeframe. So it took us three or four years to get through certain things. There were some issues like we needed a patch function. We learned quickly that groups can be very large objects. If you have a million members, you don't want to have to download it just to change one. And also that object changes frequently. If it's got a million members, it's changing frequently. You need to be able to patch that. So I can say Vittorio's in the group or not in the group, and I don't have to actually take the whole object, lock the record down, and hopefully put it back. And it says, no, you can't put it back. It's already changed. Your data is not up to date. So if I do a patch, it's easier to do. I can see how that can take five years of idea for to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> but I go, okay, great, fantastic. So that's the time frame. Now, for the items, I heard you talk about schemas, as in like you 
mentioned uh, entities and uh, schemas for those entities. I heard you talk about uh, protocol as in ways of actually uh, provisioning, <laughs> no pun intended, all of those things. And then I also heard you mentioned endpoint. So did you also define an endpoint as part of this? Yeah, so it's just how do you define a server route? We had envisioned, but it hasn't really come up with how would you deal with versioning? So if, God forbid, a skim v3 comes around, what would be the format of that endpoint? And how would you know the difference between v2? If you only know v2, how do you talk? I think there was enough of a change from v1 that it was pretty much a hard transition from one to the other. The nice thing, too, is if I know the server route, then I can query for discovery items like what features does the skin server support? So in the spec, we say patch is optional. Search filters are actually optional. Some servers are very rudimentary. You can only get a resource and put a resource. You have to know its identifier. Other servers support that. And there's a few other features that are currently optional. So a client needs to know what capability does a server have. And more importantly, what data does the server support? Is it just users and groups or is it more? Some people are storing session information in Skim. Some people are storing OAuth client information in Skim. So how do you discover that schema so that you can understand it and manipulate it? Actually, now I'm going to take my host hat off for a second. <laughs> I'm going to put my spec off or hat on. And I'm, I want to complain. I've been working on this specification for defining how to use a JWT as an encoding format for access tokens. And one of the things that I wanted to do there was to stop people from abusing scopes with authorization information. Mm. And so we added in that specification a couple of claims that are used to carry in access tokens authorization information. And I didn't know, I did not want to reinvent the wheel. And so for the claim names and the claim schema of these, I borrowed from a scheme. And in particular, I have groups, I have roles, and I have entitlements. But when I was almost clearing ISG, the people at IAN that had to ratify the name of the claims, they complained saying, hey, if I go on scheme, and if I look at the schema for the things that uh, you are using, like for roles, groups, uh, and entitlements, actually, there is no interoperable schema that I can use. Like, uh, scheme is underspecified for those uh, entities. And uh, they almost sent the spec back. Luckily, we managed to push through because uh, the main point was, uh, at least now we have a place in the token from where you know that information is. And then... Uh, the schema, we can't rely on a common schema, but it's true because uh, such a schema does not exist. But can you talk a bit to this uh, balance between uh, being very prescriptive and giving a schema or leaving it uh, somewhat underspecified and then uh, years later, someone with a strong Italian accent and long hair complain uh, with you on air? I think there was such a pushback when we were writing the skim schema that we didn't want to be too formal. So we recognized that some people were going to add schema informally and we didn't want things to be broken. So we talked about something called 
now I've forgotten the reference, but that skim would be a robust specification, which means we're not going to get panicked like X500 world was and even LDAP was. If you say something that's undefined, the whole transaction gets thrown out and suddenly everything's breaking all over the place. When TCP IP was written, the philosophy was if you understand what's happening in the data stream that you're getting, you're okay to proceed. You don't have to reject it because somebody dropped a bracket or something like that, or somebody didn't quite say it right. You can take what you want out of it and do it. So if somebody expresses a bunch of attributes you don't care about as a service provider, you're free to just ignore them. But what you are obliged to do is say what you accepted back in your response. Here's the final representation that I, as the service provider, accepted. And the client should not get cranky about that to say, no, you didn't set Vittorio's name the way I wanted it. I'm going to keep telling you to set Vittorio's name with this accent, and you better accept it. Well, you know, that's the kind of problem we used to deal with in LDAP is you would see clients and servers arguing about data values and the client saying, until I see that the server has accepted that value verbatim, I'm going to keep pestering the server to change it. And you would see these loops and memory loss circuits. And the idea with Skim is to say, there's always going to be some mismatch between domains. The standard is never going to be perfect. So I would say skim schemas are almost more guidelines, and that's why we have a schema's endpoint. If you want to know how the server will treat the data, go and look up their user object under the schema's endpoint, and it will tell you. But that allows for some decoupling between Microsoft and Google and Oracle to actually be a bit different, and that's okay. So I don't get hung up on it. A lot of people do. They want to see that this is the way it is everywhere. But I don't think the real world is that strict. So we'd hope to make the SKIM protocol a little bit flexible. And we also provided an extension point so that you could say, I want to tag add a bunch of enterprise data or this application data to a user object. So SKIM does have a formal extension point and then you can go to IANA and register those extensions that way. That's the way the skim world works. You also, Vittorio, got into something that's also interesting, that the skim world evolved in parallel with OAuth and JOTS, JWT. So why aren't they fully in alignment? I have to apologize for that, but it's mainly because they evolved independently and really, it's not a bad thing. I look at it as skim is really identity data as it sits in a data store or an API. And JOTS and OAuth are authorization server conclusions that they've made about that data to produce scopes and roles. So it's not always true that you're going to take a skim record and it's somehow going to show up in a JOT token. I think a JOT token is a highly processed assertion that says these are the set of claims that matter to the endpoints, and we're not going to bring all the skim data with it. But I might give you a reference to the skim endpoint, and that's something we've talked about in OpenID Connect as an alternative to the user info endpoint is a reference to skim. That's wonderful. Thank you. Now, my objection has been completely diffused, and once this episode... <laughs> will be online. I'm just going to take all the people that complain about this and say, hey, here is what Phil has to say about it. 
and just send them to the exact <laughs> minute. So thank you for that. I'll be ready for the arrows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, like my deflection technique, my 302 patented technique. <laughs> so before we move today, let me ask one last question about uh, Scheme Classic, let's call it, to both of you, which is uh, clearly Scheme is extraordinarily useful and it's been around uh, Scheme 2 at least for six years. So what do you think about adoption? Like, is a scheme uh, adopted? Is it doing uh, its job? What do you think the state of scheme is uh, today? I think scheme still has the same. It's well adopted. The major players are supporting it. And I, I'm ecstatic about that. I think there's still a problem in the application space, but I don't think it's unique to Skim. I think it's something to do with the identity management identity access spaces, relationship with application developers. And it's the classic problem I see in OAuth where an application developer says, I want to control the user experience. I want to do the login. I want to do everything. I want to manage my own identity. It's just a database function. I don't need you guys. And I think it's the same discussion with OAuth people and developers as it is with Skim and Skim does have its appeal for enterprise managers who want to control and make sure that the data is provisioned consistently, as Pam was talking about. That's the key driver for them. But for the applications developer, they're like, yeah, maybe I'll get on to Skim. It really, they have to get to the buy-in point that says, if you want all those enterprise customers to load their data and you want your user counts to grow, you really need to look to Skim as one of the ways to do that. But if they're at the stage of eh, MySQL database and we're done, then it's the same problem as with OAuth, where OAuth can offer fast conversions and registrations of users by using federation. Skim does the same thing with enterprise customers as far as getting users into your system quickly and consistently. That's the value to the app teams. And I think we've got a lot of work there, as does OAuth. I hear you. Great insight. Pam, what's your take? We work a lot with partners on Skim. And generally speaking, a lot of people come to us and say, hey, we want to do Skim. Can you help us? That curve is high right now. And I, I think you can see it because if you look at if you look at any application gallery of any vendor out there, you compare the number of federated applications to the number of Skim-enabled applications. It's about a tenth, I would say. And that's probably a, a generous estimate of uh, federation-enabled applications to skim-enabled applications. You know, there's a barrier here and there's a learning curve. And, you know, some people say they read the specs and don't understand. Some people say that they don't have the library that fits their particular software. So I do think that there is an issue, but I think we rarely hear people who say that they don't see the value proposition. They need to do it in a way that's not going to break their bank, right? Like they, everybody has a certain number of developer hours and they have a certain number of budget dollars that can go into implementing a feature, right? It's software 101. And so the trick is how can we, as the industry that wants to make identity ubiquitous, make it cheaper and faster for everyone out there who doesn't know anything about identity, but is a developer with a task to make that the easiest way to get identity provisioning working. I think that sounds like a fantastic segue to modern times. So 
I know that you have been contributing to uh, discussions. Like there was a recent uh, virtual bird of feather. I don't know how to use the TH in English. In a virtual ITF discussing whether it's time for Skim to expand its scope and start tackling uh, new scenarios. Can you uh, tell us about that? I can. Just so everyone knows, anyone who wants to contribute or be part of this conversation, there is a, a skim mailing list at the IETF. And I hope I can give you some links, Vittorio, that you could, I don't know, broadcast on screen can. in some fancy way. There's a skim mailing list at IETF that has been running since 2014, I want to say, Phil. Does that sound about right? Mm -hmm. So it, it ran through the entire history of creation of skim 2.0 and uh, is still running today. And through that mailing list, we've coordinated bi-weekly meetings where we have talked through what exists today. The other thing that you should know is that there are the SKIM protocols, which are RFCs 7642, 43, and 44, right? Those are the actual IETF approved documents, fancy, fancy. And then there's a whole bunch of drafts that have been proposed around SKIM. Many of them have expired, but they're all about how to either improve or profile or extend the skim family. And so, uh, so our conversations have been around where are the paper cuts, where are implementers of skim, either as clients or as servers, where are they seeing the pain, what of those drafts are valuable and what would we change and what are the business problems behind them? And then now we're in this rechartering process. We had a successful birds of a feather. We have the ability to now go and convince the area directors at IETF that we have the momentum and the consensus, the groups of people who would like to actually write better and improved documents. So we're now in that process of, of saying, okay, what, what would we do if we could have a working group, if we could create either errata on the old documents or new documents altogether, which things, which problems would we focus on first? And so that's where we are right now. That interest group is only informal, but we've now moved towards the IETF -E way to do things. Is that a word? Can you say IETFE? You can, <laughs> most definitely can. <laughs> we have folks who are acting as helping us as interim chairs, and we're starting to pivot towards doing things on the mailing list and trying to do the same consensus that everybody else would do. But you can actually see the videos for those interest group meetings. Um, we often, we've taken drafts and then just done a breakdown of the draft. So it's a great way to learn about the spec. Thank you. This is a uh, great and very clarifying. But there's one thing that I'm not sure I, I understand. From the things that you just said here, it looks like uh, that the activity is uh, toward uh, improving what's there, as in uh, not new problems, but uh, solving the problems that the scheme uh, is meant to solve today better. Like uh, you spoke about profiling and uh, similar. And instead, like uh, I might uh, just add uh, a superficial uh, understanding of the process or just uh, I heard rumors, that uh, they were entirely new scenarios that uh, they were being discussed as uh, bringing them into the purview of scheme. Did I hear wrong? I want to know what scenarios you were thinking of, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't thinking of any scenarios. Like for every time being, uh, I, uh, I thought, oh, I should read about these. And I said, well, you know what? I'm just going to have an uh, Identity Unlocked episode. And this guy will tell me why I needed to do actual work to look up stuff. Great. So fantastic. Like, uh, they, see, that worked already. You already clarified uh, what is the intended scope. 
So if we double click, uh, if you are thinking about like one or two, like the top two uh, drafts that you think are the one that deserves the most to be saved and uh, actually to have more work, which two drafts would you call out? I'll go. One of the drafts that's been stirring a lot of discussion is something called stateful paging. And when we get into why they want it, I asked, what's the purpose? Why do you need to do that? Can you tell us what is a stateful paging? So stateful paging is the idea that I could pull down, I want to query the entire database, and I want to pull 100 entries at a time and do reconciliation. So I'm sort of stating that, which I'm jumping the gun, because I had to ask the, the question of, what is stateful paging? Why do you want to do it? And people said, well, I want to be able to do is go through the whole data set. I want to picture the whole data set. So I want to create a state of the data set. I don't want to download it all at once, but I want to go through the whole data set. I want to have a picture of the data set so I can reconcile it in my domain. And when I asked the question, why? It's this notion of reconciliation. And we have to ask the process, well, is that the best way to do it? And so that's the ITF process. So somebody proposed a technology, proposed a solution. Now we ask why, and we come to, is that the best way to do it? Right. This is giving me flashbacks. This is going to be huge, huge flashbacks because I'm in like 2000 and maybe four, I was running large scale data imports for a company in California, and I was using LDIF format. I was doing LDAP imports. If you hit one error in the import, the whole thing stopped and you had to go th page through masses of, of you know, millions of lines of data to figure out where it stopped and then delete everything in the file up to where it died and then keep going. So it's, it's the resilience, right, of being able to get data in chunks you can handle without having to start from the beginning every single time. Makes complete sense in both cases. And I really hear that someone comes with a solution and uh, the problem is implied and then uh, trying to up-level the conversation and saying, let's talk about the problem because maybe there is some trick that you can use that does not necessarily entail chunking. Or maybe it turns out that chunking is the best, but uh, it's the, like everyone should come to the same conclusion as opposed to just, uh, yeah, this is a classic thing like a, I, I normally keep technology out of the show, but like having a product which is very, very flexible, people like uh, like to do things because they like, uh, and uh, sometimes they say, can I just add this parameter? And I say, why? Why do you want to add this parameter? And sometimes it turns out that they're trying to do something that uh, you can already do. They just didn't know how to do it, but they thought here was uh, So it's a eternal uh, fight of uh, layering violations. One of the things I think this also shows is that the, the world of skim is changing. When we first started, it was very one way from the enterprise out to the cloud. What we're seeing now is the cloud is adding value. The cloud is maintaining its own data. So what's happening in Azure is not necessarily what's happening on premise or what's happening in Oracle is not what's happening in premise. And you end up in this new world where there are mutual changes that have to be reconciled. And that's really the question the group has to deal with is how do we keep coordination between these across domains 
and make it work. It's not just client server anymore. It's service to service. And that's really the evolution of the protocol that needs to happen. Yes. And I would, I would say, Victoria, that asking are there new, is there new stuff isn't quite the right question. I think the industry has transformed underneath of Skim. In the time since 2.0 was published, as Phil just said, we've moved to a world where it's not on-premises pushing to the cloud. It's now multiple clouds with multiple sources of authority for multiple attributes, all trying to coordinate and also negotiate. And not only that, but to do so at such scale that we can't have these sort of clunky administrator manual driven connections, right? We, we have to move to a world. If there's anything that's new, it's the focus in the industry on automation and not just automation is in metadata and reading a metadata and doing discovery, but actual DevOps lifecycle interactions where, you know, whole connections can discover what's possible, right? Get oversight within a regulatory flow or an administrator workflow approval system, right? And then execute and completely make the entire connection unfold like a self-inflating tent where the administrator did not have to type anything. They did not have to do anything except double check it to make sure it's not fraud or dangerous in any kind of way. As you guys described this, I'm reminded of one of the late episodes uh, in season two with Darren about FastFed, in which uh, he was uh, describing the use of Scheme in the context of FastFed very much along those lines. So interesting. Everything uh, clicks. All right. That's fantastic. And uh, we've been talking for quite a while. So super interesting. If uh, you were to issue a call for action. I know Pam already mentioned that there are those mailing lists, but like, uh, what are the things that you are looking for? Like, what are the kind of contributions that uh, you are hoping to get? Like use cases, uh, experiences. What are you guys looking for in the discussion? Yeah, I think we're looking for statements of pain. So we want people to actually document the things that hurt for them today. If they are either attempting to use Skim or if they are in the in the throes of using it, those documented cries of pain would be great to have now. We're also looking for people who are interested in editing these specs or in participating in the working group. And yeah, it's it's work, but I will <laughs> you can't see you can't see the faces that Victoria is making right now, but they're very funny. But here's the thing, if if you're interested in getting into standards, this is a really good opportunity to come and be part of this skim working group because it's an amazing mix right now of people-wise, of people like Phil who've seen it and done it and been there and who are willing to support movement forward, but also people who've never participated before and who are interested in learning how to do it. So it's kind of a, a good safe space, I think, with lots of support and lots of interest. You know, there's lots of interest and at least what I can tell right now is sort of a, a fairly minimal political landscape so, you know, it's a, it's a really good opportunity to just come see how IETF works and, and be part of a, a cool movement in identity. Fantastic. Phil, what do you want to add? I would say the same thing. We want to know pain points. I'd love to also see draft proposals. So the IETF does have a format for submitting your draft. And what happens then is the group gets to look at your ideas. So if you want to share an idea 
there is a process that the ITF has mainly for IP disclosure rules. But once you get it out there, people can look at it and say, oh, this is interesting, or what is the problem you're actually trying to solve? But it starts the discussion. And what's great about that is once the discussion starts, the group may say, let's run with this, or the group may say, let's change it a bit, or here's a new proposal, just a bit. So there's a lot of sausage making, but there's some beautiful sausage that comes out. And I like that process. It's a consensus building process where we throw away the bad parts and we get to the good stuff. The editor has to suffer those that work to, to build the consensus and capture that consensus in the document. That's the process the ITF is well known for. And I have to say, the nice thing is, is that all the ITF's documents stand for a long time. So it's a slow process, but it's a stable process. And one of the great things is, is that you can pair that up with your own development as the drafts iterate, just like an agile development, you iterate your code. And when we get to do we publish, we're really saying the code is locked, the code is working. That's what publication actually means at the IETF. So it, it actually is an agile process, just runs on a longer time frame. Fantastic. I love the message that both of you gave, and uh, I wholeheartedly agree. We need more people to come and work uh, at the ITF. And uh, thank Phil for saying uh, this last thing about the code, because uh, it's easy to get frustrated with the glacial pace of some of these things, but you bring an excellent point. That uh, This uh, also gives you the chance for your artifacts, your code, uh, service, and similar to actually catch up. So wonderful. So I think this was an incredibly interesting conversation on an exceptionally important topic, which is both impactful and relevant. So I want to thank you both for your time. I want to thank everyone else for tuning in. Until next time. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app or at identityunlocked.com. Until next time, I'm Vittorio Bertocci, and this is Identity Unlocked. Music for this podcast, composed and performed by Marcelo Walowski. Identity Unlocked is powered by Zero.